five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This week, we have another special recording from the recent Canadian Aeronautics and Space Institute Astro 2019 Conference in Laval, Quebec. In this podcast, the topic is commercial lunar exploration. The panel was divided into two sections, presentations by each panelist, followed by a moderated question and answer session. We'll post the video of the presentations when it's available, but the focus for this podcast is the excellent Q&A discussion. The panel was moderated by Jan Clarence D., a space consultant at EuroConsult. The panelists were Eric Dupuis, Director, Space Exploration Development at the Canadian Space Agency, Michelle Faragelli, Chief Technical Officer at Mission Control Space Services, and John Walker, Vice President, Lunar Space Surface Operations at iSpace. Listen in. I have a, I have a couple of questions which I want to ask all of you, in fact. Um, uh, all of you alluded to this uh, changing space scene, and Eric, you mentioned that there's new business models and new partnerships being made in uh, and now it is a dynamic time for space exploration where we see more and more private organizations involved and new business models being made. Um, uh, and I want to ask you, in, in your view, how, do you th- how will this change the paradigm of government-led exploration missions? And which players are leading will it, uh, or will lead in space exploration? Will it be governments? Will it be uh, private sectors? Will it be both? Let me start by repeating that I'm a government guy. Um, So, honest answer is I don't know. Um, Things are changing. At the moment, we're in a transition period. Things will evolve slowly. I don't expect to see a radical change where we suddenly all stop doing what we've been doing for years and start doing business differently and drop everything else. Um, we, have, we are being approached by smaller companies that have an interest in doing space missions for new objectives not necessarily the large payloads, science payloads going to space, but um, we're seeing more and more um, STEM, branding, uh, publicity. We're also seeing smaller missions. Uh, We've seen, in my career, I've seen things go from satellites the size of a school bus to small sats, to microsats, and today we have CubeSats that are not just toys. Those CubeSats are actually doing useful work thanks to miniaturization. So I expect that space exploration will probably undergo, has already started undergoing a similar transformation. And that does change the business model in the sense of affordability. It's now much more affordable to conduct space exploration, and it brings it within the reach of organizations that are not 
large, rich governments of developed countries. Um, the model is changing, but I don't know yet how it will end. Um, certainly, you can expect to see some a continuity of government-led missions with the traditional models. You're going to see government-led missions where governments buy services from commercial companies. And you're likely going to start seeing eventually commercial missions either for the kinds of commercial endeavors I mentioned earlier or eventually in the very long-term exploitation of space resources. Thank you. I might pick up on that. Is my mic on? Okay. I might pick up on that because I, I think the, the interesting roles governments are taking now is really that catalyst role. And by having, we, we all talked about CLIPS, and for those of you in the audience, that's commercial lunar uh, payload services. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So that's NASA's program to send payloads to the surface of the moon. And what's that, what that's already done without having landed a single payload on the moon, it's gone in the last 10 years when we were working on uh, rover missions, resource prospector, things like that. You're talking about a two-week rover mission that would cost you know, in the hundreds of million dollar range. And, and right now we're talking about two-week micro-rover missions, two orders of magnitude less. And, and it's really driving, the services are driving the cost down. And, and I think that's what's really interesting. Uh, and how that'll all play out, it'll be, it'll be fun to watch. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I think it'll take some time um, to change to a commercial landscape. Uh, so, as space industry companies, we typically have space agencies as customers, and they seem to be really taking the initiative um, to make programs like Clips and Leaps, sorry, Leap, and uh, give some incentive to be faster and cheaper, offer standard services. Um, and I think as the greater public, greater, uh, greater set of industries, sees the success of those types of missions and types of technology development, then it's an opportunity to come in, for them to come in and say, okay, look, they've demonstrated that space can be cheaper. Uh, we can have access even to the lunar surface. What can I do that's interesting there? What, what can we do to make money on the lunar surface? Definitely. Um, uh, so right now I also want to ask you a bit more questions concerning the challenges, um, uh, and all of you mentioned uh, challenges with commercial lunar, lunar exploration and all that, um, and I wanted to ask you what would what you expect to be the biggest challenges for your uh, organization, and how do you plan to overcome these challenges? John, you mentioned that technical challenges would be, uh, was, was a big problem for, uh, in terms of the landing of the previous uh, uh, competitor uh, rovers. I want to ask maybe is there other types of challenges that you see in the near future? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's definitely a technical challenge for a commercial company to land and rove on the moon. Um, but now we have an ecosystem with many companies. We're able to get um, partners that can help us surpass those challenges. And I think our company is kind of at that 
stage where we can see the horizon past those challenges. Um, I'm actually really excited to see how many companies are actually going to the moon now. And so I think our biggest challenge now is going to be our competitors and differentiating ourselves with our competitors, deciding when to work with them, when to compete with them, which is a unique space, agent, or space industry problem, I think. Um, but yeah, we'll have to find a way to differentiate us as a company because the, the landscape suddenly became very competitive. Yeah, I think um, as, a, as a private company, um, you need to make money. Um, and if you're planning on landing on the moon in three years, well, you know, you have people's salaries to pay and rent and, and internet connections and all that fun stuff. Um, and so you need to be able to bring in revenue as a commercial company. And, and, and the whole idea behind uh, commercial space exploration is that you're not reliant upon government contracts to, to, to grow that business. And so then it becomes challenging if you're a company that intends to deliver payloads to the moon. Well, before you start delivering the payloads to the moon, how are you generating revenue? And, and you know, some companies have raised money uh, from, from private investors. Uh, some are, have recently won contracts to do payload delivery to, to the moon, and that's, I'm sure that's a relief, uh, and, and that helps. And other companies have to do sort of other things, and that's probably where we fall under the category is uh, we're making commercial sales of our space product for terrestrial applications. And I think that's a that's you're sort of bootstrapping the business as you go. And I think that's that's a that's a challenge in this kind of near term. I think we all kind of drink the Kool-Aid when it comes to this being a commercial uh, viable industry 15, 20 years from now. Uh, but the reality is, is y y it has to be viable today for for these companies to exist. So I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the near term. A lot of you know, companies coming in and coming out of the sector, uh, but I think the viability in the near term of the business models, I think, is a is a is a significant challenge. Not to minimize soft landing on the moon, but I think that's a that's a that's a not an engineering problem to solve. Mm -hmm. yeah. From my perspective, I would say the big challenges for the agencies are not technical; they're not scientific; um, they're cultural. We've had decades of doing business in a certain way. Governments are very solid, but very constrained organizations with sets of rules that are hard and long to change. Um, if we're going to have new ways of doing business, new partnership models between government and industry or government and academia, it's going to require looking at those mechanisms and those rules and challenging them and also pushing for changes for basically adapting to the new reality. And another big change is going to be to change the risk aversion. The space business is a very risk-averse business. We don't like taking risks. Uh, we like to be 99.999% sure that everything is going to work because it's so expensive. Now, those new opportunities that are brought, that are brought to us that are going to be much less expensive will open the door to risk-taking. 
but that will change that will require a change in mindset to accept risk and to be willing to accept that not every mission will succeed but that overall in the end it'll be cheaper for everybody so to me those are the big challenges i think it's more on the cultural side so yeah, I actually want to uh, I want to expand a little bit on that. Uh, you mentioned uh, risk aversion as being one of the biggest changes right now, and that there's a uh, people need to take uh, a little bit more risks and because of the unforeseen future. Um, and I want to ask, what are the conditions? Uh, I mean, what are the big challenges and risks of public-private collaboration? And what are the conditions for successful public-private collaboration to ensure all parties uh, that their objectives are met? considering all of these risks. Um, I would turn to our uh, commercial partners first to answer that question. I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say. So, so the biggest challenges and, and risks with public-private partnerships, is yes. that what you're saying? So, so there has been a commercial company that has landed on the moon. Not very softly, though, unfortunately. Um, and I think that was an important milestone in all of this, because it didn't land successfully. But largely, I don't think anyone has deemed the mission a failure. And I think that's a shift in the mindset that, that Eric was referring to, where you have to be OK with that, and it has to be viewed as a success. So as long as you're failing cheaply, um, it's better. Now, with public-private partnerships, you're spending taxpayers' money. And that becomes a completely different uh, conversation, I think, because there will inevitably be a risk tolerance at some point. The question is where. And you know, not to say that we want to make you know, human-made craters on the surface of the moon. Uh, but inevitably, there will be some failures, and, and it'll be about what the risk appetite is. And I think it'll behoove the commercial companies in all this to balance cost with risk, and yet still deliver uh, success in whatever shape uh, or form that is. And I, I think that's a, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm kind of dancing around the, the, the question. Um, but, but I think that might be the secret to all this, is how do you still have success if there could be failures? Uh, a lot of folks are lowering the bar a little bit now. We're talking about two-week surface missions. And the reason why we talk about two-week surface missions is night survival is very challenging. And so no one's saying that they're going to do it, although everyone's going to try to do it. And I think it's those types of things, kind of incremental successes and in building that capability from the ground up will be the right strategy. Uh, but I think the governments will have to be in it for, uh, for the long haul to, as, a, as an anchor customer to, to support that industry getting off the ground. Um, yeah. So there has to be kind of the socioeconomic benefits of growing this industry, this homegrown industry, and that's of the interest of the government for, with, through STEM and high-paying jobs uh, in, in the STEM sector and things like that. There has to be other benefits to it other than uh, delivering payloads to the surface of the moon. I think. And when we're talking about partnerships between private and public sector, Mick already mentioned that we're talking about public funds being used. So there will have to be an acceptability to the taxpayer, not only for failure, but also for 
leaving somebody else in charge. Uh, if you have a partnership between two entities, it's going to be very important to decide who's in charge, who gets the blame, who gets the glory uh, if it fails. And as an agency, if you have given control to somebody else, well, if it fails, we will get blamed irrespective because if we're in charge, we get blamed for having failed. And if we're not in charge, we get blamed for having rescinded control over to somebody else. So it's going to be very tricky to structure these partnerships in such a way that it is desirable, built for success, but also acceptable. And uh, where um, failure will be an accepted outcome. Do you have anything to add to this as well? Um, yeah, I'll just add that I don't think we've found yet kind of the equilibrium point where the risk tolerance lies. Um, probably takes some failures and some successes to really figure it out. Um, but we'll get there, I think. Um, yeah, I think uh, having been involved in the Google Lunar X Prize teams and also some of the CLIPS discussion, um, there's a lot of individuals where as soon as the space agency is involved, they go look up the space agency standards and, okay, we need to follow this specific procedure for risk analysis. And so it's up to the space agencies, I think, to say clearly um, they're trying to also shift the paradigm and they're not necessarily looking for us to copy the old way. If they were, they would just do it the old way. Um, and NASA is actually very good with clear communication about this. Um, so they also haven't figured out exactly what the risk level is, but they very clearly say that uh, it's higher risk tolerance than they've accepted in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, if I were to follow up on that comment as well, um, uh, and that um, maybe perhaps along the same lines, but a little bit more specific, um, the Trump administration recently announced that they plan to return American astronauts to the moon surface in 2024. And I wanted to ask how this announcement influences his plans as, as an example of these risks and challenges that, that we are to foresee within these, uh, this future. How does this affect your organizations and the plans that you, you are to, 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 to make? I can start with that one. Um, it will open a whole set of new doors. It creates a sense of urgency because if NASA has plans to go to the moon rapidly, uh, basically it will open opportunities for others to contribute and to follow. So whereas before this announcement, we could have hoped for a slow, steady buildup towards lunar exploration, now this has given us an impetus to really accelerate development and opportunities to partner up, especially with, uh, with NASA, uh, for contributing because, let's make it clear, it's going to be difficult for them as well. You know, this is quite a challenge to try to return astronauts to the moon in five years. 
They will need all the help they can get from partners, be it international partners or from uh, private partners to make this happen. So it's, to me, it's a world of opportunity that's opening right now. Yeah, I mean, um, this is probably the only Trump tweet I could try to interpret, um, on stage anyway. Um, but I, I think it's not as, it's not as out of the blue um, as it may seem initially. There's a lot of capabilities that have been developed. Google Lunar XPlies really was a, a catalyst in growing that industry. Um, Blue, uh, Blue Origin uh, really has been working on this problem um, on the Lunar stuff with zero government contracts. Um, there's a lot of people working on the problem, and I agree with Eric. This is it, it drives everyone together with a common goal in the very short term, and yeah, it might be a pivot for some of us, but it's not a bad pivot uh, if that's where things are going to kickstart in that industry and making the cislunar economy kind of sustainable. Um, I think that it's a good thing. Yeah, I'll be very interested to see. I'll be interested to see, to see uh, how much they allow the new players um, into this crude program. So the risk tolerance there is certainly going to be much lower than robotics missions. Um, so I think that'll be led by the older players, at least as, as far as prime contractors go. Um, but there should be a lot of opportunity to people to come in with newer companies, provide components or precursor missions, uh, all of the supporting robotics missions. But um, overall, it's going to be very good for everybody and um, give us more opportunities to fly, I think. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So right now, I would like to actually open the questions to the floor. Um, uh, if anyone would like to ask any questions to our panelists, we have two microphones right over there. Um, uh, if not, I can continue also asking questions as well. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, uh, as another example also of these types of you know risks and uh, in terms of government and all, um, how how would you think a change in administration or government in the U.S. and or in Canada or and anywhere influence the priorities and the timelines in future lunar exploration activities, and how would that affect your organization? Yeah, so first of all, um, I think there's a lot of momentum to go back to the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really feel and hope that an administration change wouldn't drastically change the direction. Maybe just the timeline would be affected. I think also, there's a critical mass of space agencies and other entities all going towards the moon. Mm -hmm. So I would hope that any one administration isn't going to change the course of the whole industry. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, the US really does drive the direction for global space exploration. Um, so there's always a risk of that. Um, maybe to paraphrase Rick earlier, is if I could predict <laughs> politics, I wouldn't be in the space <laughs> industry. Um, it, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm certainly hopeful that it wouldn't have a significant impact. Um, there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of private companies. You know, uh, the, the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's of the world are, are doing this the way they're doing it, regardless of clips and other programs. 
but the reality is, is they're spending money on clips now, and, and, and Leap is coming in from CSA, and ESA has plans as well. Um, I don't know how, I'm not a, a, a policy wonk, and I'm not a politician, so I don't know how hard it is to redirect those funds once things start getting, getting going. But I'm hopeful that it wouldn't uh, have a significant change. Not much to add, really. Um, I share the opinion that if anything changes, it'll be the timeline more than anything else. And I'll give you a scoop. Don't believe any of the timelines that you're seeing today anyways, because they will change. Um, so any change in politics, all in all, will be no change, uh, because those timelines that we're given today will not be the timelines that we see in the end. And any change in administration will not change the momentum to the point of completely derailing the whole story. If anything, it's going to be minor tweaks, shifts in destination, shifts in timelines. But I think this thread is there to stay for a while. So if anyone also has questions, feel free to stand up and wait along the, line, uh, the microphones. Oh, we have one question over there. Um, so one of the uh, business models that I've heard of uh, for sort of longer term and actually commercial uh, entities being the ones requesting the missions as opposed to just uh, delivering the missions um, is on uh, resource utilization and bringing those resources uh, back to Earth or integrating them into uh, the Earth-bound economy um, in some way. Uh, I'm curious on your thoughts on that or other longer-term sort of uh, commercial drivers underpinning this stuff uh, or where you see any of that going. I can take that one. Um, I'll start by stating that resource utilization is in space is unavoidable. One day, sooner or later, we will need to use resources in space to, to support future missions, be it for the production of consumables like water, oxygen, or fuel. Um, you can expect it will happen, and there may or may not be an economy to support that in the short term. Uh, ISRU itself will happen before there is an economy to support it. Uh, but the challenges with ISRU are not technical. There's, in my opinion, two main challenges. One is the economic viability. You have to have a market that will use those resources if you want to make it a commercial endeavor. But the biggest challenge is actually regulatory and legislative. And that is a can of worms that uh, I'd rather not open on stage uh, because I'm not proficient enough in outer space treaties. Um, but it's, it's, a, um, it's an issue that will have to be resolved at the planetary scale before we embark on commercial in-situ resource utilization. Um, yeah, I can add to that. So we have offices in Tokyo, Luxembourg, 
and California. And that's not by accident. These are the three countries which have legislation underway to allow companies uh, to use space resources. Um, so this type of legislative work is ongoing. I agree it needs to be at a higher level, uh, more countries involved. Um, but it is ongoing and there is progress. Um, I'll say one, one more thing about that is uh, it's just going to take a lot of time, I think. And um, we're at the prospecting stage now. So we're not at a stage where we can go to a mining company and easily partner with them and say we're going to bring back some minerals. It doesn't work like that in terrestrial mining, and it's not going to work like that for off-world mining. Um, I think we'll follow basically the terrestrial model, which is small, uh, very high risk tolerance companies do prospecting. Uh, they consolidate over many locations, let's say. What are the good locations, the potential for taking the next step? Um, and if there's several options to choose from, they can show this is the one lo good location. That's when a mining entity might want to step in. Um, yeah, just um, add my two cents to that for what it's worth. Um, I think we're going to see some ISRU technology demonstration missions in the near term. I think it's interesting science, and people want to validate the, the concept in space. Um, but the viability of that obviously has, has a, a regulatory facet to it. But I, I'm probably in the camp where I think there needs to be a demand first. And the question is, what is the demand? So if we're talking about consumables, well, if we're refueling geostationary satellites and there's a demand for that, then, then, then I think it, everything else will follow. If it's uh, water uh, for consumables for, for, for human spaceflight and there's a demand for that, it, it will follow. I think it needs to be um, demanded. I think we're right now we're seeing this stage in the next five years of people demonstrating technologies at a smaller scale just to kind of move the needle a little bit on, on that technology. But ultimately, the, the viability of the business, I think I would categorize it with all the other ones, which is you know the jury's still out of where the economics will be. But eventually, uh, I agree that it, it will get there. Uh, the question is when. Um, yeah. Yeah, but people are talking about it, and I think when you when you talk to 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 uh, folks at the government of Luxembourg and the Luxembourg Space Agency, a big reason why space resource utilization is important to them, it, it, it's not just the fact that they're a small country with not natural resources and they view space as an expansion of their econo economic sphere. It's that it creates good jobs in the country. And I think that's something that's really interesting when it, that drives the policy in those countries is why, why do we want to change the regulations? We want companies like uh, planetary resources or deep space industries to, to set up shop here or, or, or iSpace. Um, they're the only one of those three companies that I mentioned that, that are still in operation. <laughs> planetary resources and deep space are no longer in operation. But um, I, think, I think it's coming. It's just a question of, of when. Do we have uh, any other questions from the audience as well? So I think I think Mick was referencing the the Israeli lander that crashed into the moon, um, and so obviously that's not something we like to see. Um, but on that mission, there were a whole lot of good outcomes as well um, before they crashed. So my question is, um, for these upcoming lunar missions, how are you sort of? planning to, to get 
good outcomes like that, even if you do run into uh, failures in the end. Absolutely. Uh, we need to establish mission success criteria that will not only rely on the end objective being met, but to have basically a succession, succession of mission success criteria with different gradation to ensure that if we are going to invest into these missions, that we get something in return and that we can build on it and not only put all of our money on the ultimate outcome solely. So I agree that is the strategy to ensure success, is to have those goals that build up incrementally and that if you achieve partial mission success, you can still claim victory. Yeah, so internally we also have um, different levels of mission success criteria. Uh, so we also, if we were to crash on our first mission, that wouldn't be a failure. There's still lots of information, lots of lessons learned. Uh, we also have a lot of additional instrumentation on our first couple of missions um, for this contingency so that we can learn as much as possible and input into the next designs. Yeah, and I think even uh, beyond the, the technical you know, uh, learning outcomes you can get from those missions, I think the reality, and, and this is what the Space IL folks were really promoting, was STEM, STEM education. It got a lot of uh, social media traction and a lot of attention in the country. Uh, you know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll see a, a bump in you know, people enrolling into engineering programs in, in universities. Those are real measurable outcomes for governments. Those are really important things. Um, and, and, and we're talking about it here today, and I think that's a, that's a sign of success. Um, and I think those are things that all kind of are taken into consideration, I think, when, when governments make decisions to invest in, in these uh, uh, higher risk kind of uh, endeavors. We have time for one more question from the audience. If, uh, if no one has one more question, I have one final question for our panelists. Um, uh, you mentioned that, uh, um, that the vision is there to have like, a sustainable uh, presence within the moon, and that it's not a question of if we will get there. It's more a question of when we will get there. Um, uh, and I wanted to uh, ask if you think there is some sort of event or a game-changing milestone or technology, a catalyst that would, that would have to occur or that will occur that uh, you think would, would enable this vision to, to happen? Or do you think it's already happening right now? I think, I think for the small new players, there's two big milestones. So the first one will be the first successful landing. Um, that's going to show that many people within this new industry are capable of landing. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of us uh, professionally related to each other, similar backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, so that's going to really raise the visibility and uh, positive viewpoint of everybody. And then the second one would be lunar nighttime survival technology. Mm -hmm. So most of us are planning just a two-week mission at start. Um, if something turns on on the second lunar day, that's great, but that's not really where we're putting our effort into. Um, but once we get to the point where several companies can survive the lunar night, I think that's going to enable basically permanent presence on the moon um, and really enable rapid development. I'll, um, 
Although I do agree with John's um, answer, I'll, I'll try to answer it differently and not give technical uh, uh, reasons. I'll give of, uh, other types of reasons. I think. Um, I think we're going to see some landing in the next well, according to Orbit Beyond, in the next year and a half. We'll see how it all works, but certainly within the next two years, we're going to have these milestones or some of these milestones achieved, I think. But I think what the real kind of game changer is going to be is when folks outside of conferences like this are talking about commercial space exploration. And what I mean is there's an attention beyond the technological achievements and the uh, uh, science that we're doing, and it, it expands to a broader audience or user base or customer base. Uh, I don't know what that's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, um, you know, video games or tourism or what. But there's, there's, I think that's going to be the game changer. Is when the general public is truly and genuinely interested in the viability of commercial space exploration. And just from social media, you can see that is starting to gain momentum. People are sharing posts by Elon Musk or, or, or Jeff Bezos. And I think that's really important. And I think there's going to be some kind of game changer that has to do with uh, more permanent uh, and more sustainable presence in space. I just don't know what it's going to be yet. Agree entirely. The key is public support. I think the first landing, the first modest landing, might be one of the keys to unlock that. But really, the big game changer is whether the public supports the endeavor or not. That will be the, the, the key to the whole thing. All right. Well, thank you very much to our panelists. I'd like to give like, a round of applause for them. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at canada in space and if you use facebook you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page the space Q. if you like the show please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app